Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Not So Grateful Dead podcast. This is Grayson Decker, your host. It is episode number 12, and today I have a quite crazy case for you. And I personally am sitting here drinking a coffee with pumpkin spice in it, and it is delicious. Happy fall. Should have told you that at the very beginning of September, but here we are. 18 days in. Happy fall. (laughs) But yeah, today I have a pretty crazy case for you. I'm excited to share it. It is kind of upsetting, but it needs to be shared, obviously. They all do. But yeah, let's get into it. West Memphis, Arkansas is the largest city in Crittenden County, Arkansas. There are many beautiful parks and the downtown area of the city has a ton to do with 84 stores and restaurants lining Broadway Street. May 5th, 1993, three eight-year-old boys are reported missing in West Memphis. These missing young boys were Steve Edward Branch, James Michael Moore, and Christopher Mark Byers. Steve Edward Branch was better known as Stevie, and he was the son of Stephen Branch Sr. and Pamela Hicks Hobbs. Stevie was born on November 26, 1984. He was just in the second grade attending Weaver Elementary School in West Memphis. He was a very good student, and he was loved by all of his classmates. Stevie also had a stepfather, Terry Hobbs, who was the father of Stevie's younger sister, Amanda Hobbs. Stevie had super bright blonde hair and was last seen wearing some blue jeans and a white t-shirt. James Michael Moore, better known as Mike, was born on July 27, 1984. Mike was the son of Diane, Dana Moore, and Todd Moore. He had an older sister named Dawn, and he too was just in the second grade at Weaver Elementary School. Mike was known as a natural-born leader, and he used his skill often in Cub Scouts. He also really enjoyed playing like he was a law enforcement officer. Christopher Mark Byers, better known as Chris, was born on June 23, 1984. He was living with his mother, Melissa Byers, and his adoptive father, John Mark Byers, and he had an older half-brother, Ryan Clark, and Ryan was 13 at the time of Chris's disappearance. Chris was also just a second grader at Weaver Elementary School and had recently become friends with Mike Moore and Stevie Branch. On May 5th, 1983, Stevie, his younger sister Amanda, and his mother Pamela headed home after the children got out of school. Soon after they all made it home, Mike Moore stopped by the home of Stevie and asked if he wanted to go ride bikes around the neighborhood. Stevie had just gotten a brand new bike from his grandfather, Jackie Hicks, and he was so excited to try it out. Pamela, Stevie's mother, said that the two of them could go out riding until 4.30 that afternoon because Pamela had to be at work at 5 o'clock that evening. She was working as a waitress at Catfish Island, which is a local seafood restaurant in West Memphis. The boys headed out to go ride bikes, but by the time Terry Hobbs, who as you know, is Stevie's stepfather. He was like planning to take Pamela to work around 4.30, which is why she wanted them home. The boys had not returned home. But before Pamela even left for work that day at around 3.30 that afternoon, Chris Byers 
knocked on her front door asking if Stevie and Mike wanted to go ride bikes around. Uh, but as we know, Stevie and Mike had already left to go ride bikes. So Chris was just like, okay, well, I'll just stay here with Pamela. And he decided to watch an episode of Muppet Babies with Stevie's younger sister, Amanda. Chris Byers left the home at around four that afternoon. There are various sightings of Chris Byers all throughout the afternoon and early evening, and these sightings suggest that Chris had eventually actually met up with Stevie and Mike at some point that afternoon. Chris's adoptive father, John Mark Byers, found Chris riding belly down on a skateboard and took him home. His father spanked him and gave him the task of cleaning out the carport. John Mark Byers then left the home and left Chris to be watched by his mother, Melissa. Melissa states that she had last seen her son cleaning out the carport, going in and out of the home a couple of times around 5.45 that evening. Chris eventually left the home and met back up with Stevie and Mike. As one can imagine with a case that has three different young individuals who were all hanging out around the same time, but also different times, and we're out and about in the neighborhood, there's going to be a lot of sightings, but, and it's honestly kind of confusing, there's so many, but the last known sighting by those in the area was around seven o'clock that evening, and this was by a man named Chris Wall. He stated to have seen Stevie and Chris, but he actually did not report seeing Mike with them. Chris Wall was actually eventually polygraph tested, and he was cleared. Basically, they just were saying that his statements were true. Mike was actually last seen by somebody different who was Brian Woody. He states that he saw the boys walking into the Robin Hood Hills, which is located near Interstate 40. This sighting is kind of iffy because Brian was said to have been in a vehicle that was quite a ways away from Robin Hood Hills, so they don't really know if he could actually see that it was in fact Stevie, Mike, and Chris. In affidavits, the last known sighting of all three boys was around 6.30 that evening. There were three neighbors that saw the boys playing together, and they also claimed to have seen Terry Hobbs, Stevie's stepfather, calling them to come home. Around 7 o'clock that evening, John Mark Byers reported Chris Byers missing. The other parents, too, start to realize that their sons hadn't made it home either, so they also report them missing at that time as well. There were limited searches carried out that evening by law enforcement, but friends and neighbors conducted their own searches along with the limited law enforcement searches. But nothing was actually found. Around 8 a.m. the next morning, May 6, 1993, the Crittenden County Search and Rescue carry out a thorough search for the young boys. Searchers looked everywhere, but they also mainly focused their search on the Robin Hood Hills where the boys were last seen. And despite searching all throughout Robin Hood Hills, they could not find the boys and there were no signs of where they could be. Around 1.45 on the afternoon of May 6, 1993, Steve Jones, who was a juvenile parole officer, spotted a young boy's black shoe floating in a muddy creek. 
This creek led to a major drainage canal in Robin Hood Hill that led to the 10-mile bayou. This was located basically behind the Blue Beacon Car Wash. Investigators further searched the area and the drainage canal, and this is when they sadly discovered the deceased bodies of Stevie Branch, Mike Moore, and Chris Byers. All of the young boys were found completely nude and hogtied with their very own shoelaces. They were tied in almost an unconventional way where a lot of slack was left. They each had their left wrist tied to their left ankle and their right wrist tied to their right ankle. All three of them suffered from brutal injuries and Chris Byers specifically was sadly castrated and had many lacerations on his body. Their clothing was found within the muddy creek and they were all found fairly close to one another. Chris was slightly further north than the other two boys, but they were mainly found in the same area. Most of the clothing was also found inside out. Once the parents were notified, as one can imagine, they were all completely devastated. It is reported that Terry Hobbs, Stevie's stepfather, collapsed to the ground and wept. Other than the clothes and the bodies, there was very little tangible evidence at the scene. It was noted that there was a lack of blood evidence and fibers, and it also looked as though somebody had swept the area clean. The autopsies that were carried out by forensic pathologist Frank J. Peretti, he basically stated that Chris Byers' cause of death was multiple injuries, whereas Mike Moore and Stevie Branch's cause of death was multiple injuries and drowning. Chris Byers was also the only one who was found with drugs in his system. Chris had actually been prescribed Ritalin or methylphenidate in January of 1993. This medication was used as part of his treatment plan for his ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. In the actual autopsy report, this drug is called something different. They call it carbamazepine. It was also noted as well that the dosage level was subtherapeutic, which basically just means that the dosage in his body was lower than that of his usual prescribed pills. His father states that this possibly could have happened because Chris may have forgotten to take his medication the day he went missing on May 5th, 1993. The time of death of the boys was anywhere between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. on May 6, 1993. Investigators initially had the belief that the young boys had been trigger warning raped and this was because there was trace amounts of sperm dna found on one of the pairs of pants that were found on scene but this was later disputed in court As this case progressed, the public began circulating rumors around the city of West Memphis that this possibly could be tied to some sort of satanic ritual or cult-like killing, claiming it had to have been one of the devil worshippers. Due to the horrendous nature of the crime and basically just like how the boys were found, that's why they believed this. But not only did the public start believing this, but law enforcement too. 
Gary Gitchell, who was the chief inspector, informed the public that a possible explanation for these terrible murders was cult activity. Steve Jones, the juvenile parole officer who initially spotted the shoe in the creek, pointed towards Damien Eccles being a possible suspect due to his apparent interest in occultism. And not only this, but Steve Jones also believed that Damien Eccles was capable of murdering children. That is a very big accusation to make, sir, but I digress. The reason that Steve Jones felt so strongly about Damien Eccles is because Jerry Driver, who was a juvenile probation officer in Crittenden County, he brought Damien Eccles' name up to Steve Jones. Jerry Driver basically believed that there was some sort of satanic cult in West Memphis and that this was because of Damien Eccles. Jerry had been supervising Damien due to some burglary and sexual misconduct things that Damien was dealing with, and Damien was to be supervised by Jerry until he was 18 years old. So who is Damien Eccles? Damien Eccles was a 17-year-old high school dropout. He had a history of mental illness, including major depression, but what are we not going to do? judge someone on their mental health. Thank you. Damien had long hair. He wore a lot of dark or black clothing. He had a tattoo and he supposedly wrote dark poems, which I too wear a lot of dark clothing and I have tattoos. So to me, this means nothing. His appearance shouldn't be that heavily weighed on in their investigation. And that's just my opinion, but I digress. Damien was also a self-proclaimed Wiccan. So let's talk about what a Wiccan is. A Wiccan is someone who participates in the religion Wicca. And Wicca is a modern pagan religion, and it's a fairly new religious movement. Wicca has no central authority figure, and there are many denominations of Wicca, but these actually aren't known as denominations, but traditions. They worship and work with goddesses and gods, and the celebrations of the Wicca religion are based on the moon and sun cycles. They will also incorporate the practice of magic into their things, and some individuals in the group tend to stray away from the word religion, but instead call Wicca a spirituality or a way of life. In the years leading up to the murders, Damien's history was a little rocky. He had apparently threatened both his ex-girlfriend and her then-current boyfriend, along with his father. While Damien was staying with his mother for a few months in Oregon in 1992, he had been admitted to a psychiatric hospital, and here he was placed on trigger warning, suicide watch. In the fall of 1992, Damien returned to Arkansas, where he was briefly held in a juvenile detention center. He then was transferred to a psychiatric hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas. This was all because he supposedly attempted to suck blood from another inmate's arm. Once Damien was released from the hospital, he moved back to West Memphis, Arkansas. Damien had to meet with a social worker regularly at the mental health center. And in the social worker's notes, she reported that Damien had told her that he may become another Charles Manson or Ted Bundy. 
Damien Eccles was almost immediately a huge point of interest for investigators because they had tunnel vision when it came to the why of this heinous crime. They viewed it as cult-like and satanic, and they stuck with that very hard. This, to me, seems almost counterproductive. Why not start with the individuals that actually knew the boys and were part of their life? It could be anyone that is close to them. In between May 7th, 1993, and May 10th, 1993, so very shortly after these murders had occurred, Damien is interviewed twice at the trailer park where he lived and once at the police station. While questioned, he stated that he had never even heard of the three young boys and goes on to say that whoever did commit this crime was sick. On the evening of May 5th, 1993, when the boys actually went missing, Damien states that he was at home with his mother and that he was talking to his two girlfriends on the phone. When Damien was interviewed at the police station, his interview was carried out by Lieutenant James Sudbury. Lieutenant Sudbury reported that Damien had said the killer is probably someone local and he won't run. Lieutenant Sudbury also goes on to say that Damien liked to read books by Stephen King and that Damien had the word evil spelt out on his left knuckles, so like a tattoo. Damien willingly took a polygraph test, but his results recorded that his responses were indicative of deception, which, as we know, we should always take a polygraph test with a grain of salt because polygraph tests are not as accurate as one may believe. We all have very different physical responses, and just the sheer fact that you're being questioned by law enforcement could cause you to probably act nervous. I know I would. So I'm going to ask you to just pause real quick and think about who I just told you about, Damien Eccles, and his history, what he looks like, where he lives, a trailer park, how he is immediately basically accused of murdering all of these children, and just like his whole persona. And think about what that reminds you of. Because as I was researching who Damien Eccles was, I was thinking in my head, this all sounds so, so, so familiar. Like, why does it sound familiar? He like, like I said, all of the things are connecting in my brain. And then I finally come to this realization. Oh my God, Stranger Things, Eddie Munson. It has to be who his character is based off of. I do a little Google search and I was correct. So Eddie Munson, who we all know and love from season four of Stranger Things, is based off of Damien Eccles. I kind of think that's pretty cool. So I just thought I would add that little tidbit in here. Because of their interest in Damien Eccles was like so strong, they began to also look into one of his friends, Jason Baldwin. So who is Jason Baldwin? Like we talked about before, Jason Baldwin was a close friend of Damien Eccles. The two of them bonded over their music tastes and how they also liked the same fiction. And they also both had this very strong dislike for the type of culture that was in West Memphis because it was right in the Bible Belt, which I feel like we can all kind of really see maybe at this point why these individuals were so heavily looked into. Bible Belt, Arkansas probably didn't have much of a liking for individuals who did not fit their cultural norm, 
which really pisses me off, but I digress. Like I said, you could have looked into a lot of other people, a lot of other people, but whatever. Investigators seemed even more interested in him because of his matching evil tattoo on his left knuckles. Jason Baldwin denied any involvement with the murders at all, and he had previously been arrested for vandalism and shoplifting, but other than that, he was a very good individual. Jason earned high grades in high school, and he had a very good talent for drawing and sketching. He was even encouraged by one of his teachers to study graphic design in college. So now the investigation takes a very interesting turn. There was a local waitress named Vicki Hutchinson, and she had told the police her beliefs on the case. And this was on May 6, 1993, before the boys had even been found. Vicki had been there because she was taking a polygraph test herself, and this was to determine whether or not she had stolen money from her employer in West Memphis. Her young son, Aaron, was also present during her polygraph, and he spoke about the young boys. He said that they were his friends, and he mentioned to authorities that the boys had been killed at a playhouse located in Robin Hill Woods. When the bodies were eventually discovered, like we talked about previously, the location was supposedly close to that of the playhouse Aaron had mentioned. Aaron even goes on to say that he witnessed the murders and that they were committed by Satanists who apparently spoke Spanish. Aaron, though, was unable to identify Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, or Jesse Miss Kelly, who we are about to discuss in just a moment. Authorities then reach out to Vicki Hutchinson to carry out almost like a sting operation. Vicki agrees to this because she believes that she could be useful in solving this case. She had a neighbor, Jesse Miss Kelly, who would sometimes babysit for her and he would also mow her yard. She told authorities that Jesse had told her about Damien and that he would drink blood and stuff. Because of this connection, she believed that she could carry this out and she could also gain information on Damien's lifestyle. Hutchinson then asked Jesse Miss Kelly to arrange some sort of meeting with Damien. She stated that she wanted to go out with him. Jesse agreed to this and then he invited Damien to the Hutchinson home for introductions. Vicky goes on to tell the authorities a very wild story about that night. Vicki Hutchinson states that on the evening of May 19, 1993, her and Jesse Miss Kelly were driven around by Damien Eccles. He was driving a red Ford Escort, which this in and of itself is a little suspicious because Damien had no car and was actually never known to have driven one at all. She states that Damien took them to an S-bot, which is a gathering of witches. This was held in a field that was just outside of town. She goes on to say that there were 10 individuals there with their arms and faces painted black. They then stripped off their clothing and began touching one another. 
She said these people in this so-called orgy were using nicknames with one another like Spider, Snake, and Lucifer. Vicky then states that this freaked her out, so she asked Damien to drive her home, which he then did, and she says that Jesse was still at the orgy when her and Damien left. Her son, Aaron, also at this time, states that he saw five men chanting in a circle in Robin Hill Woods during a time before the three boys had gone missing and he was hanging out with them. He goes on to say that these men were doing what men and ladies do. Because of this information that Vicky had given, she was never charged with theft and she claims that she did all of this to avoid her own criminal charges and to obtain the reward for the discovery and conviction of the murderers. On June 2nd, 1993, Vicki Hutchinson is polygraphed over her statement. This polygraph is carried out by Bill Durham, and he states that Vicki was, in fact, telling the truth, which again, with the damn fucking polygraph tests. They're not that accurate, so stop using them as the whole base of your investigation. Thank you. On June 3rd, 1993, police pick up Jesse Miss Kelly for questioning. They picked him up around 9 that morning. They inform Jesse that there is a $35,000 reward for any information leading to the conviction of the person or people who carried out this terrible crime. They go on to tell him that if he can help solve this case, the money will go to him and his family. Jesse immediately states that he had nothing to do with these murders, but authorities kept on pushing him. He is questioned for hours, and not to mention, Jesse had a pretty low IQ of just 72, and he was also a minor at the time. After hours of questioning Jesse, he begins to tell the officers what they want to hear. That is, that him, Damien, and Jason were the ones who committed these murders. And now I'm going to tell you what Jesse had to say about his interview. Quote, I kept telling Inspector Gitchell and Detective Ridge I didn't know who did it. I just knew of it, what my friend had told me. But they kept hollering at me. They kept saying they knew I had something to do with it because other people had told them. After I told them what the three boys were wearing, Gary Gitchell told me, was any of them tied up? That's when I went along with him. I repeated what he told me. I said, yes, they were tied up. He asked, what was they tied up with? I told them, rope. He got mad. He told me, God damn it, Jesse, don't mess with me. He said, no, they were tied up with shoestrings. I had to go through the story again until I got it right. They hollered at me until I got it right. So whatever he was telling me, I started telling him back, but I figured something was wrong because if I had killed them, I would have known how I had done it. After five whole hours of interviewing Jesse and basically forcing him to tell them what they wanted to hear, they taped his confession, which, are you fucking kidding me? Five hours later, why wasn't the whole encounter taped? In his taped confession, 
Jesse tells authorities that the three of them, Jason, Damien, and Jesse himself, were in the Robin Hill Woods. Jesse states that he watched Damien hit Chris Byers in the head with his fist. He bruised him up really badly and then turned around and did the same thing to Stevie Branch. He states that during this time, Mike Moore started to run and Jesse went and ran after him and eventually caught him. He says he holds him still until Damien and Jason get to him and then Jesse leaves the scene. Jesse returned back to the scene and all three boys had been tied up and stripped down at this point. Jesse states that Damien and Jason were all like they were just having sex with the young boys and cutting them. Jesse takes off running because he couldn't watch that, which, oh my god, like, could you imagine just being forced to come up with this narrative that you just did not take a part in? You actually don't know any of this information. It's just being forced down your throat, and you're a child, basically, still, and you are easily intimidated and I just, it really bothers me that they did this to him. Like, it's just so upsetting. Very, very upsetting. Almost immediately, authorities take this confession and use it to obtain warrants for all three of their homes. And by 10.30 that evening of June 3rd, 1993, all three of the teens, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly, are arrested and charged with three counts of capital murder. Once again, still just pisses me off. Can't believe that. It's honestly just crazy. Crazy. They forced that confession out of him and then... Ah. Anyways, there was a press conference held that very next morning, June 4th, 1993, where Gary Gitchell, the chief in- inspector, is asked about how he feels about the case. And he's basically asked, like, on a level of 1 to 10, how confident are you about this case? Gary Gitchell answers with 11. And that is all I'm going to be telling you today because this case is crazy and there's just so much more to it that is just crazy. That's the only way I can describe it. So I just wanted to break it up into a couple of parts because there's so much information surrounding this case and like what happens. So yeah, you're going to get to hear the rest of it on Wednesday and be patient because it's coming and it's crazy. So like I just said, I will see you on Wednesday for part two of this case. It's going to be crazy. I'm excited to cover it. It's a super upsetting case, but it's also just very interesting. And it also is just really cool that they based a Stranger Things character off of it. I love Stranger Things. But I don't think that I have any other announcements other than please follow me on social media. Because like I've said a ton of times, 
big things are happening in October and you're gonna wanna know about them because there could possibly be something really exciting for you. So please follow me and reach out to me. Tell me what you wanna hear. Tell me if I need to fix something. Constructive criticism is the best. Uh, I really think that's about it. I'm gonna give you my social medias so you can go follow me and figure out what I'm gonna be telling you that's super exciting. My email, which please just email me, talk to me, it's fun. I, I specifically cases, I wanna know what y'all wanna hear. So please reach out to me on my email and send me cases that you find interesting or you just wanna hear in general. My email, the not so grateful dead pod at gmail.com. And then I have a website, which is the not so grateful dead dot podbean.com. I have an Instagram, the not so grateful dead underscore podcast, and I have a TikTok, the not so grateful dead pod. I have a Facebook, the not so grateful dead podcast, sorry, <laughs> with Grayson Decker. And also my Instagram and Facebook, I post pictures and like a description on the case every single time I post an episode. So if you want to see like visuals and stuff, please go follow me because I I post it all there and it's super cool and super exciting. And I think that's about it. I hope you have a wonderful Sunday and a wonderful start to your week. I will see you on Wednesday for part two. Bye-bye.